0: So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We have been, uh, for the last couple of weeks, we have been studying the book of Romans. We're going to be doing so for the next several months. Really, really excited that we are in this journey, in diving in. And now, it's important to remember what Romans is. It is a letter written by Paul both to introduce himself as well as to introduce his gospel message to Christians who are living in Rome. And as with any letter, when you get it, it's typically intended to be read in one sitting, right? You don't, you don't get a letter and go, oh, I'm going to read one paragraph today and then I'll read another paragraph tomorrow and, you know, a month from now, maybe I'll finish it. Now, the problem with this is, of course, that Romans is 16 chapters long. And if we tried to read it all the way through and study it all the way through. It would take us hours and hours and hours. And so we have, we don't really have time on a Sunday to do that. So what we have decided to do is, Hey, we're going to take chunks of it. We are going to take a bite out of of Romans each week and we're going to chew on it because this is like steak. And so we want to just begin to nourish ourselves with it. However, there is a drawback to this approach. And that is that as with any letter, It is one unit of thought tracking from beginning to middle to end. And as we take chunks out of it, we tend to focus on one section and we sometimes forget that it's part of a much larger whole. And we may have a question that gets stirred up in one section that's not dealt with until a chapter or two later. And so we just need to recognize that what we're dealing with is one cohesive unit of thought and, and furthermore, it's, and this is important to remember: the chapter headings, the chapter breaks, and all, even all of the verses were never part of Paul's original writings. Those were added by later generations in order to make this more accessible, so that we can begin to reference different passages. Hey, turn to John or to Romans chapter two, as opposed to going, um, turn to like the fourteenth paragraph of you know, and someone's going, I can't count that high, um, so. The, all that to say, we are dealing with chapter 2, but I don't want you for a moment to think that just because we've reached the end of chapter 1, Paul's thought is complete. Because last week, we stepped into some really, really thick stuff. We began to talk about the wrath of God, which is not a topic that we enjoy talking about. However, it is crucial to a complete understanding of the gospel message. And I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that in a little bit. But let's just step back for a moment and kind of get our bearings of what we talked about last week because it is a continuation of that thought. Last week, Lee pointed out that at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins to focus on talking about those godless, wicked people who although the heavens declare God's glory, they refuse to worship him as God. They have rejected him. They said, nope, sorry, I'm good. I'm going to go ahead and be the captain of my own ship. I don't need God to be God in my life. And instead of worshiping the creator, they began to worship the creation. And so what did God do? He said, oh, you think you know what's best for you? You think that's what you want? Fine. You can have that. And he gave them over to the hungers of their flesh. The, the picture I get is of a little boy getting caught smoking a cigarette behind the house, and dad walks around the corner and catches the kid, and he's like. And the father has one of two options. One, he can kind of take the cigarette, stamp it off, oh, you're in trouble, and, and take him into the house and deal with him. Or he can go, oh, oh, don't stop. No, 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 no. Here, have the whole pack. Here, make sure you inhale deeply. And that's what God has done here to these wicked, immoral people who have rejected Him. Is Fine. You think that's what you want? Then have that. Go ahead. Just run with reckless abandon into the things that you want. And that is His wrath. We might go, no, Eric, that's not His wrath. His wrath is when He calls us on our stuff. His wrath is when He, you know... Punishes us for the choices that we've made when he kind of pulls the sheets off of what we've been hiding behind and reveals and exposes our sin. I go, no, that's not his wrath. That's his grace. That's his mercy. When he stops us, when we try to take the wheel and drive, and he goes, stop, you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you're going to accomplish, but you are going to wreck not only your own life, but the lives around you. And when he calls us on our stuff and allows us to taste just a little bit of the fruit of the path that we are walking down before we fully realize the damage that we are walking into, that's his mercy. His wrath is when he gives us over to what we want. And that's what he is doing in this instance. You think that you want to be the captain of your own ship? Fine, go right ahead. And so they have gone into this downward spiral of depravity where we keep running towards things that we think make us feel free. And in reality, we're slaves to our hungers. And not only that, but we begin to celebrate the things that we are enslaved to. Not only do we run to these things or the people that he's describing, but they begin to approve of other people who do it. I had a friend who used to teach a 12-step program, and he said, what we celebrate becomes the norm. The things in our culture that we celebrate, that we put on magazine covers and on television, ultimately becomes the norm within our society. And man, are we seeing that play out. And man, were the people in Rome watching that play out. Because this depravity that they celebrated as freedom had percolated throughout the entire Roman Empire like yeast works through dough. And it had corrupted it. And Paul simply said, God is giving you over to those things that you think you want. You're tasting the wrath of God. He's he's giving you over to it. He's saying, you want to take the wheel? Go right ahead, knowing full well that you were driving headlong into a brick wall. Now, I don't doubt that as the people in Rome were reading... That part of the letter. Because remember, this was a letter that Paul had written and it was being read in the community of Christ followers, some of them Gentiles, some of them Jewish Christians. They're all together. And I have no doubt that there were some people in that congregation starting to shake their head vigorously. Oh yeah, you tell them, Paul. Finally, somebody's telling these, these darn sinners that they need to be better, that they need to try harder, that they're rejecting God. Yeah, you tell them. And so Paul... Now turns his focus to those moralizers, those those, you know, holier than thou people, and goes, oh, oh, wait, look, don't don't nod your head so vigorously because you're just as guilty as they are. You have no foot to stand on, you who would like to point the finger and say they're sinful, and I'm not. So we begin reading now in chapter two, verse one. It's a continuation of the same thought from chapter one. You. You moralizers, the people who would like to say, your sin is bad, my sin's not so bad. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. There's a a, a name for somebody who says one thing and does another. It's a hypocrite. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Now, we know, verse 2, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, whose sin, is based upon truth. God knows everything. There's nothing hidden from Him. He's a just God, so He's going to judge righteously. So we know that His judgment is based upon truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's not that God thinks that you've got it all together and that they're the only sinners out there. It's that He is being patient and allowing you the realization that, oh my goodness, I need him because I am a sinner. So I need to come to the only one who can deal with this sin on my heart. And God, I want to turn from my wickedness and I want you to be my God. He is being patient with you because he desires, ultimately, your repentance. However, because of your stubbornness, verse 5, and your unrepentant heart, because you're not turning from these things, you are storing up for yourself wrath for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul now brings up a topic called the Day of Judgment. A day that's coming where every man, woman, and child will stand before the judgment seat of God and have to give an account of every word, thought, and deed that we've ever done. Our lives will be on display, both the things that were public as well as the things that were very private, even between our own ears. There will come a day where we will be judged by our God in heaven. And you're storing up for yourself wrath on that day because you are casting judgment against people. He says in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they've done. God, our righteous judge, is going to give to each person what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, hold on just a second, Paul. Because it really sounds a lot like he just espoused a a works-based salvation, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like he just said, on the day of judgment, those of us who did good stuff and were pursuing holiness... Will be declared holy and will have eternal life. Whereas on the opposite end, those who say, ah, I don't need, I want anything to do with you, and they pursue their fleshly yearnings, are going to ultimately experience death, eternal separation from God. But that flies in the face of everything Paul has ever said in any of his other epistles. I mean, Ephesians 2 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that nobody, nobody can boast. And that's not the only place. In fact, in the very next chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 3, which by the way is just a couple of paragraphs down the line, Paul is going to state in no uncertain terms that nobody will be declared righteous by observing the law. Nobody That nobody can stand before him and be declared righteous because of our efforts. So did he contradict himself just a couple of paragraphs before? Or is he saying something different? May I simply suggest that he's actually saying something different. I would suggest that what he's actually talking about here is he is describing and explaining God's righteousness. God is a righteous judge, whereas we like to sit in judgment on other people Our God in heaven is a righteous judge. He will judge us truthfully and justly. And so, on the day of judgment, we will stand before Him and give an accounting of our entire lives and we will be judged against His righteous standard as spelled out here in His Word. And if we have lived a life that is faithful to this, meaning we have not broken any of his commandments, we have not sinned against his righteous standard in any way, shape, or form, then as a righteous judge, he will declare us to be not guilty, and he'll say, come on in, let's spend eternity together. But I think we all know where we stand in this ledger, don't we? I think that Paul has already made it abundantly clear, and will continue to make it abundantly clear, that there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard. And so every single one of us will be in the opposite camp on that day of judgment. Every single one of us will be declared guilty because of the law. Which is uncomfortable for us. Because we live in a very... uh, We live in a society that loves to play games with sin. We live in a society that likes to say there are big sins and small sins. The big sins tend to be the ones, or at least the ones we like to call big sins, tend to be the ones that other people struggle with. The small sins tend to be the ones that we struggle with. Is that a fair assessment? Okay, so we play this game. It's called the hypocritical game of We point a finger and we say, oh, what a terrible sinner. That person is horrible because they do this or they do that or they struggle with this and that is awful. But me, I just struggle with what's common to everybody else. Every man's battle is my battle, you know? So God is going to be very lenient on that. And we begin to play this game. I mean, homosexuality is one of those topics that we tend to play this game. We tend to point a finger and we say, Oh, that's really bad. Whereas, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. So I I struggle with lust or um, yeah. You know, so we have divorce and remarriage in our church. God calls that adultery Um, or I cheat on my taxes. No big deal. Everybody does that. Or I lie. Or I harbor bitterness and anger towards my brother in my heart. God calls that murder. Or I harbor pride. I am so glad I'm not like those other people over there that struggle with that. No, you're right. You're not like them. We're worse. Because at least for many of them, they are being consistent with their beliefs. For many people who don't accept God as God, who don't accept His Word as the righteous standard by which they live their life, they're living consistently. We, on the other hand, have said, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life and I want this to be the standard by which I live my life. And yet we don't live by it. We're being hypocritical and we're judging other people more stringently than we judge ourselves when, in fact, we are the very ones who are sinning against the law that we say, or at least the standard that we say we want to live up to. So we're being hypocritical. And I just want to say a couple of things to this topic of homosexuality, very briefly. Because, sadly, culture has been defining this conversation for us. And, unfortunately, there have been a very small, very vocal group of people that supposedly represent God, but have totally and horribly misrepresented Him, that have been very vocal on this topic. And all the entire church has been painted with this brush. And we have sadly remained silent far too long. And we have been hypocritical by allowing our own stuff to kind of get in the way. And we haven't dealt with the logs in our eyes. So anytime that we do try to say something, it seems very hypocritical. But I don't want to remain silent any longer. So I just very briefly want to share a couple of the worst abuses, a couple of the worst lies that have been spouted by a few people who misrepresent God's heart on this topic of homosexuality simply because our society is talking about it, so I feel like there is a, a moral obligation to say something. The first lie that they have been suggesting is that homosexuality is a worse sin than all other sins. And we've already looked at that. That's garbage. Okay? A sin is a sin is a sin. Anything less than God's righteous standard is sin. And if we are guilty of breaking even one part of it, then we are guilty of breaking all of it. So to point at one thing and say that's worse than something else simply because we don't struggle with it is hypocrisy. And I apologize for the ways that we have allowed that lie to germinate. Another lie that has been suggested, whether vocally or or simply insinuated, is that same-sex attraction is in and of itself sinful. That would be like me saying, well, if I feel an attraction towards another woman, I've sinned. No, it's what do you do with that thought? When I dwell on that thought, when I dwell on that temptation and and allow it to then begin to, to fruition into lust or even act upon it, then it has become sin. But temptation in and of itself is not sinful. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So I am sorry for the way that we have allowed the belief that same-sex attraction is in and of itself sinful, that is absolutely not true. The third lie, and I think this is the most reprehensible lie of all, that has been purported by a select group of people, a very small minority of people within the Christian church, is their suggestion that God hates homosexuals, and it is disgusting, and it is wrong. God hates sin, period. But he loves the sinner. And thank goodness, because we're all sinners. We are all in the same boat. We have all fallen short of his righteous standard. And none of us have a leg to stand on to try to be a a holier-than-thou moralizer. None of us. So I thank God that he loves the sinner. I thank God that he died for us because he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so I apologize for the ways that we have stayed silent on this topic and not addressed it. On the flip side, I should mention, though, that there are some lies that some people within the homosexual community have been saying as well. One of those lies is the suggestion that homosexuality is not a sin. And to be truthful... If you do not accept this as God's word, if you do not accept God as God and rather you look to society for your moral norms, then you're absolutely correct. Homosexuality is not a sin according to a social standard. But if you declare God to be God and you want him to be the Lord of your life and you accept this is the standard by which you desire to live your life, then we cannot in good conscience ignore the fact that it calls it, along with any other misuse of our sexuality, sin. Lust is sin. Adultery is sin. And homosexuality is sin. Furthermore, a lie that the homosexual community has placed forth is that your sexuality is your identity. I can't tell you how many people I have interacted with from the homosexual community, at least five or six people that I've interacted with on different occasions that lead with their sexuality as if it is the sum total of who they are. Hi, I'm Kevin. and I'm gay. Do you accept me? I'm like, don't even know you. That would be like me saying, Hi, I'm Eric. I have anger issues. Do you accept me? (laughs) I'd love to get to know you, but for some reason you seem to think that your brokenness is your identity. That's not the sum total of who you are. Yes, we are sexual beings. Yes, God has created us to be sexual in context of the way he designed us to be sexual, one man, one woman for one lifetime. However, we would like to repackage that. We would like to say that you are the sum total only of one aspect of yourself. And I'm sorry, but that is incorrect. And I'm sorry for the ways that some of us have been told that who you are is unacceptable because the sum total of who you are is this one iota of who you are and so I'm sorry for the ways that we remain silent on this and I want to tell you as a church it is my ardent desire that we would be a place that is safe for anybody who is wrestling with any area of growth any area of sin to be able to come unapologetically and say I am in process and I want to bring my life to Jesus and I want to I want to be in relationship with him and with other people as we're working through this That's my desire is that we would be a refuge for sinners because I desperately need a refuge because I am a sinner. And I I don't want to hang out with people who don't think they have sins because, quite honestly, they're jerks. (laughs) In Jesus' name. However... I don't want this to be a church, and I know that Lee does not want this to be a church where it is safe to remain in sin, where it is safe to simply not look at the stuff in our lives and not do anything about it. As a church, we are all about coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, have your way with us in every aspect of our life. Jesus, open up every door of my life. Show me, is there any way that is not that grieves your heart? And have your way with me even there. Search me and know me, O oh God. Okay? I just felt a need to say briefly that. Uh, if at some point you would like to have a deeper conversation, I would love it. And if you are here and you are wrestling with same-sex attraction, thank you for being here. Thank you for braving, uh, you know, being a part of this body. And you are welcome here. And if you are here and you are struggling with some other area of sexual brokenness or you are struggling with some other addiction or or sin or anything in your life, welcome. You're in good company. Okay? Because the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 2 is that none of us can stand before God's righteous judgment and be declared righteous by our own strength. We are all sinners. Every single one of us has fallen short of his righteous standard. And every single one of us deserves his wrath. So going back to Romans chapter 2. Just a moment. So God is going to repay, verse 6, each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. He's speaking simply to a hypothetical. None of us are going to be able to live up to that standard. And to those who by persistence... Verse 8. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, guilty, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Jews... We're thinking, hey, we are God's chosen people. We get to get out of that. Lee's going to look at that more in depth next week because his, his conversation kind of continues into that topic. He says, no, 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 no. All of us are going to stand before God, both Jews and Gentiles. But there's going to be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, for the, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. He is a just, righteous judge giving to everybody what they have deserved. But wait a minute, Eric. Wait a minute, Paul. What about those people in the jungles of Borneo who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? What about the people who have never been able to read God's Word so they don't know His righteous standard? How can we hold them accountable for the same things that we know? How about those individuals in Rome who were raised as Gentiles? They were never exposed to the the Mosaic law. How can they be held accountable to the same things. Paul speaks to that in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, we will be judged according to the light of the revelation that we have been given. And God's going to figure out how that works. For it is those, I'm sorry, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, okay? Simply knowing the word of God does not save you. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're being a law for themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them. And at other times defending them. In other words, even if we don't have the word of God, even if we don't have the mosaic law that you can look to, God has designed each and every man, woman, and child on this planet. We were made in his image and we have been implanted with a moral compass. We call it a conscience. And that conscience is God's truth that has been placed into each one of us. Regardless of what culture you go into, we begin to realize that we have moral norms. Pretty much every culture recognizes that killing other people is a bad thing, that life is valuable. And cultures recognize that taking care of people in need is a good thing, a moral compass within within there. And ultimately... That will be the standard. The standard of revelation that each person has been given is ultimately how God will determine on the day of judgment how we do. Now, we already know the result of that judgment. We already know that we have fallen short of God's righteous standard. But he he ends this section in verse 16. All of this will take place. This this judging of what we have been entrusted with, of the truth, will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. There is coming a day when we will stand before our Father in heaven and we will give an accounting for everything we've done, the good and the bad, and He will... Determine whether or not we have lived holy, righteous lives. And we all know how we're going to do on that test. Because we have not lived up to his righteous standard. There is no one who has lived a perfect life. Not one of us. But what I find so fascinating is the last four words of that sentence. As my gospel declares... Because I'm less thinking, how on earth does a day of judgment when all of my secret stuff is going to be laid bare, bode well for me? How is that good news? Because that's what gospel means, good news. So how is a day of judgment good news? What on earth does this have to do with your gospel? To that question, I would simply ask you this question. In any good story of redemption what do you need obviously we need to have a a, a positive ending right where there is redemption of somebody from something but before we get there there needs to be a moment of true conflict there needs to be an obstacle or an enemy to be overcome there needs to be a moment where you you, you begin to believe I cannot see how this is going to turn out well The darkness needs to be so dark that when the dawn of light comes, it is blinding and wonderful. Probably the best picture I can give you is found towards the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yes. I mean, is that or Star Wars? So let's just go with this one this time. At the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's these two little guys. They're called hobbits. One is named Frodo. The other one is named Samwise Gamgee, his buddy. And Frodo and Samwise have been entrusted with a ring that symbolizes sin that has the potential to destroy mankind utterly. And these two hobbits have been entrusted with the responsibility of overcoming nine cinematic hours of obstacles (laughs) in order to bring this ring to a mountain, to throw it into the lava, to destroy it once and for all. And they do it through a ton of help from other people. But in the process of destroying the ring, it becomes almost certain that they will be destroyed as well. I think it's a beautiful picture of what the day of judgment and what comes after it looks like. So let's go ahead and watch this. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace seems a whole lot sweeter when you realize just how wretched you really are. And that's the point of this section of Romans. Is Paul is simply reminding us that we are all, each and every one of us, a wretch. That we have fallen short of God's righteous standard and we have judgment that we deserve. God's wrath is what we have earned And that's what makes the good news of Jesus Christ so unbelievably good. Because what we could not do by our own strength, God has done for us. He has made us righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done for us. He died on the cross. He took the punishment that we had earned so that we can be declared not sinners, but saints. We can be declared not outcasts, but sons and daughters. It is as if we walk into a court of law and our Father God is sitting on the judgment seat. And a list of our sins is read before us. And our Father is a righteous judge. He is just. He cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that we have indeed broken the law. And so as any just judge would, regardless of his love for us, he declares us to be guilty. And he imposes upon us the steepest fine that the law allows. Because he's just. However, he's also merciful. And so as soon as he casts the punishment he then takes off his judge's robe stands up from the judge's seat and walks down next to us and then proceeded to pay our debt in full so that when we walk out of that courtroom that day it's not in handcuffs it is not with the the punishment that our actions have earned hanging over our head not with a death sentence upon us rather we walk out of there restored made right. In other words, we are righteous by the law or in the eyes of the law. We have been justified by His blood because over that bill of sins that we had accumulated over the course of our lives and continue to accumulate now has been stamped in Jesus' blood, paid in full. And so we deserve wrath, but He gives us grace. Grace. We deserve eternal separation. And he says, come home, my son. Come home, my daughter. I love you and I can't wait to spend eternity with you. And that is why it's so good news. So it is amazing grace. And it is so sweet on the ears of all of us wretches. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to have one last song. We're going to take our offering and then we're going to go and have lunch together. A bunch of saved sinners. Father, I thank you for loving us. I thank you that you are righteous and good. I thank you that you are just. But I thank you even more so that you are merciful, that you are grace filled, and that you love us more than we could ever possibly fathom, and that you have done everything that we could not. And so we look forward not to the day of judgment. We look forward to eternity with you when there will be no more tears, no more brokenness. And we can just be with you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been redeemed. Worshiping you, celebrating with you, and doing the work that you have planned for us, just like you did when you designed us. So we give you our lives and we pray that you would also use us as ambassadors of this good news because there are a ton of other people out there who are wretches that don't realize just how wretched they are and don't realize that there is a way that there is a Father who loves them so Father, thank you for your amazing grace in your holy name Amen